Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Hi guys, welcome to today's episode of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Before we kick off, I just wanted to give you another update about the events that I have happening in the US while I'm there on my tour. So I've got events coming to you in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, and hopefully Boston and New York. And I'll also be heading to Phoenix for almost an entire week for the AANP conference. If you're going to be there, I would definitely love to see you. Make sure you come say hi. If you'd like to hear more about the events, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash events. That's the place where I am updating uh, the event information every single day as tickets become available. And you can also put your name and email address down to subscribe to hear the moment a new event launches in your city. So I do hope you'll pop your details down because I would love to see you in person. So without further ado, let's get into today's show. On today's show, we're joined by Heather Jacobson, who is an author, researcher and founder of the online magazine StuffedPepper.com. She has an MSc in Ethnobotany and worked at Fairchild Tropical Botanic Garden and the National Academy of Sciences in dealing with health issues that no conventional doctor seemed to be able to solve. She has unraveled the true science behind gluten, grains and chronic disease. Her latest project involves researching and writing about the effects of stress on the body and practical steps one can take in alleviating chronic stress. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Heather Jacobson. Heather Jacobson, welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And uh, we actually got connected by the lovely uh, Dr. Norm Robillard, who has been on the Healthy Gut Podcast talking all about the fast track diet. And uh, I'm really interested in your story. Um, You chronicle your own personal journey from going from uh, chronic illness um, and now to a gluten-free life. So I'd love for you to share with my listeners um, your own experience with starting to reclaim your health. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll do the best I can not to talk too much (laughs) because it is actually a long story. It's actually a lifelong story, Um, but I'll give you the highlights. 
Um, <clears throat> basically, I had tummy problems probably for as long as I can remember. And I was always um, sick in general as a child, which, of course, now we know that a healthy gut equals a healthy immune system. So I probably didn't have too healthy of a gut back then. Um, you know, I had my tonsils taken out. I had... Um, all kinds of like mononucleosis, all kinds of stuff. I was always sick with something. Um, and in high school, I, I remember being bloated a lot. And, you know, we're very, you know, when we're in high school, teenagers are very concerned about how we look, our appearance. And I remember always feeling, you know, that my tummy was really fat. It wasn't really fat, though. It was it was bloated all the time. And I was I was uncomfortable. Um, and then in college, um, I actually had abdominal pain so badly one night I couldn't finish studying for an exam that I had the next day and I was generally a very good student so I felt really guilty about this but it was just such excruciating pain that I couldn't do the exam so <clears throat> um, you know I told my father and then they, he sent me to a doctor and the doctor had me do a colonoscopy and um, unfortunately I guess um, there wasn't the, the doctor didn't find anything so, you know, he communicated that back to my father. My father, you know, um, interpreted that as it was all in my head. <laughs> it was just too much stress from exams. Um, but I knew it had to be more than just that. It wasn't just the exams. Um, but nothing was ever found. And I wouldn't eat on campus anymore because whenever I was um, on campus, I would feel really sick with any of the foods at the mess hall. So I usually just ate salads. And I even brought my own, like, salad dressing in a purse in my purse to the mess hall you know because it was just um I just felt there was something somewhere that I was eating that was causing me sickness but I could never figure out what it was um and then in 1998 I had an emergency appendectomy um and then just six weeks after that um miraculous timing it, it was too too coincidental I thought for it um to be coincidence, really. The timing was just too close. Um, I, I started developing really strange symptoms that um, doctors, one after the other, couldn't figure out what it was. Um, I think I got diagnosed with fibromyalgia at one point, and, and some people, they were just clueless. They had no idea. Um, but basically, I couldn't sleep at night. I felt always very tense. Um, I was losing a lot of weight. And it turns out that I had Graves' disease, which is um, an autoimmune um, thyroid disorder um, in which um, the thyroid goes hyperactive. And now most people probably have heard of Hashimoto's and the hypoactive thyroid, but this is the opposite. Um, and it can be really dangerous if it goes unchecked. Um, so um, unfortunately, the doctor's advice then was to, the only option was to um, ablate the thyroid to give me radioactive iodine and um, it was like I think one of the worst de decisions that I made was to trust this doctor um, and but you know I tried to do a little research but this was back in 1998 you know there, we didn't have the internet that had you know tons of research out there and tons of information sometimes you have to filter through it but I you know it was really not easy for me to figure out if there were any other options than what this doctor told me so that's what I did. We took the radioactive iodine and it um, ablated my thyroid. And to this day now, I have to um, take hormone replacement, thyroid replacement, um, even no matter how well I eat, you know, and, and whatever. I'm still going to always have to deal with that. Um, <clears throat> so um, that was 98. And then in 2001, 
Um, I was on a work abroad program. I had left my boyfriend back in Washington, D.C. and went on a work abroad program. And I landed in London on September 11th. Um, we turned, we were staying at a fellow student's house. We turned on the TV and there I saw the Twin Towers, you know, um, and people uh, jumping out of the buildings. And I was just in awe. And they, they just kept playing this loop over and over again. Um, and... Uh, I tried to figure out where my husband was because he was, or he actually, I should say my boyfriend, he's not my husband, but <laughs> um, he was in Washington, D.C. And of course, you know, the Pentagon also was targeted. Um, and I kept trying to reach him and I couldn't reach him. And then I was with these students that were not American. And one of them was saying that we deserved it, you know, so it was a really horrible feeling for me as well as many other people, of course, obviously in the U.S., um, so it just is kind of funny timing because also during that week, there was another student that was in charge of our food budget and he decided to go, this is what he bought for the week. I, I ended up eating a, a diet that was, it just was really, you know, foreign to my system. So basically for breakfast, we had like Wonder White bread toast. And then for lunch, we had bologna sandwiches on white bread. And for dinner, we had pasta. And then I probably had a beer or two within all that. Um, and that was three or four days in a row that I ate like that. And then my body just couldn't take it anymore. And um, all of a sudden, I start, started losing hair in clumps. Um, I had like big whitehead um, acne on my face, which was normally I had pretty clear skin. So that was a telltale sign that something wasn't right. And then my whole like digestive system just shut down like nothing was moving it was just sitting there for um days and um and it's just interesting timing because well first let me say that I didn't know exactly right away what was what was going on um but I couldn't I didn't feel like eating for days and even weeks afterwards um but when I did start eating I started eat, whenever I ate bread I started to feel the same feeling and I started I eventually put two and two together, that bread was making me sick. And the interesting thing is the timing of it all. You know, they say that a lot of times there's a stressful event that triggers um, an autoimmune disorder and celiac disease is an autoimmune disorder. Graves disease is, is an autoimmune disorder. Um, so it, it's just hard. I don't, I don't know um, if the 9-11 attacks and me being, you know, separated from my boyfriend um, and feeling all alone if that triggered the gluten intolerance or if I was just susceptible to it you know from an early age but it the timing is kind of interesting it is and I listened to your story and we've got such a similar story I was also um, over in the UK for 9-11 and I had just turned up into London. Um, I, it was the beginning of my life, which became seven years of life over there. And I also remember switching on the television um, that morning. I was looking for work. I'd just arrived literally two or three days prior and seeing that just horrific footage um, being shown on a loop on the television and it was just – it was awful and so stressful and my um, 
I was I had been traveling around Europe with a girlfriend and she was flying back to Australia that night to move back to Australia and we had to go out to Heathrow Airport and it was just so stressful uh, because we didn't know what was going to happen and and police over there don't generally carry guns so to see a policeman with a gun or a policewoman is a is a pretty full-on experience in the UK um, mm. because they, they don't normally walk around with them in Australia and the US it's very different they carry guns on them but uh, it was quite intense and and I also was laughing at you talking about the food you ate because I went into what's called dossing um, where you sleep on people's couches in the UK and you pay a nominal amount of money per night to sleep on a couch it's not very comfortable and you're broke you're a backpacker so you're eating white or beige food and I also remember doing exactly the same thing where as the flat we would all chip in for um, for our weekly food and there's a supermarket over in the UK which I don't know if you remember called Iceland when it's everything's frozen and so you can get these big slabs of um, lasagna and frozen pasta and all sorts of white beige frozen food which our flat would live off and I was the same I would just feel miserable and but not necessarily put two and two together and then I was drinking beer because I'd never drunk pints of beer before so <laughs> you and I are so similar <laughs> oh my gosh that's crazy we were we probably might have even passed each other on the street there somewhere oh my gosh and I also gosh. remember yeah and I also remember thinking because riding the tube a lot and thinking well if they did that you know in, in in new york city they could also attack the tube and being kind of like paranoid about riding the tube at that time it was a little scary but so the it was so to continue like i said i tried not to talk too much but to continue the the story um my then uh, boyfriend then came to um denmark which is where this where i was where my study abroad program was actually out of, was out of Denmark, even though we were in London at that time. He came to Denmark and proposed to me just a little bit after that. So I left the school and went back to the U.S. Um, to be with him. And I went to some doctors and I told them, look, I think that bread is causing me problems. You know, And like I said, I didn't have, well, this was now 2001, so the internet was a little bit more helpful then. And I, I think I might have found the PubMed website or something, but I had learned about celiac disease. And so I was pretty sure that bread and gluten, you know, were my issues. And so I went to a couple couple of doctors and um, one of them laughed at me. I was like, oh, no, you don't have celiac disease. And another one tried to give me an antibiotic, you know, like that's going to help anything. Um, and but basically no one believed me and they didn't want to test me. So to this day, I don't know if I ever had celiac disease or if I simply had gluten sensitivity I mean, either way, it doesn't really matter because when I eat gluten, I get very, very sick and that, that's all that really matters. It's so interesting hearing uh, your experience because it's not dissimilar to so many of my listeners and my own whereby we know something is wrong and we go out seeking help, support and advice from uh, medical practitioners and unfortunately is what is so often the case still to this day um, – through their own lack of uh, knowledge and awareness of conditions, although I do think that gluten uh, sensitivity is a lot more um, known about these days, uh, you know, having a practitioner laugh at you uh, is so demoralising. How did you 
find the strength to go from doctors, you know, really not being a support for you to, to taking control and doing something about it? Well, I mean, luckily, you know, so when one of the doctors, you know, like you say, it was really demoralizing. And when one of them laughed at me and said, you don't have a problem with gluten, I, I went to my boyfriend. I was like, well, I guess I don't have a problem with gluten. So, you know, let's go out and celebrate. <laughs> and so we had pizza and beer. And guess what? I got sick. <laughs> And it was clear as day that it was, that gluten was causing me a problem. So I, I just stopped eating it. And luckily, you know, I did have my boyfriend that understood and saw everything that was going on and, and he, he knew that this was an issue. So at least he supported me. Um, but I did kind of like hide, you know, in the, you know, the corner of the office, you know, in the office party when people were having, you know, some celebration and all there was was bagels or cake, you know, and I knew I couldn't eat it. Um, it was something that I, you know, kind of kept to myself for a long time because nobody really understood it. I tried to explain when I eat bread, I get sick, but nobody understood it. And, and my own father, you know, continue even to this day, kind of rolls his eyes at me and doesn't believe it. But I, I knew that it was making me sick and that was enough. I mean, I felt so bad from it. It didn't make any sense for me to try and eat it, you know? So, and I guess the good thing is that I had, had learned to cook from a young age. So Obviously, I had to do a lot of my own cooking. And so eating out for the longest time was really difficult starting back in 2001. Now, obviously, it's a lot easier. Um, and so it was probably about, you know, 10 years later that gluten free became a buzzword. And you start, I started seeing bakeries pop up here and there and other bloggers doing it. And then I was like, Oh, okay. I'm not the only one, <laughs> but it, it was for a while, you know, difficult. Um, and so I guess that's why I started the Stuffed Pepper website was just to kind of be a resource for other people that are newly diagnosed with celiac disease or gluten sensitivity. Um, the idea was, you know, just to be sort of a hub of information and a recipe sharing site. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I had sort of a simple idea of what it would be. Um, but it turns out that as I owned a website, I started to become more of an authority on what it means to go gluten free. And I, and I thought it was pretty straightforward. You know, you just don't eat wheat. <laughs> but it turns out um, it's actually not straightforward at all. Um, and that most people actually aren't healing on the gluten free diet. Um, and that that was an eye opening, you know, medical paper that I came across that, wait a minute, we're all kind of doing this gluten-free diet wrong. It is really interesting. And, and something that you've um, mentioned, uh, and I'll just sort of take a step back before we move forward in terms of what sure. you do today, is around the testing piece. And, and I wonder whether, um, you know, I'm the same as you. I've never been tested for celiac disease because I never wanted to do the three months of gluten consumption every day to right. um, be able to get a more positive test. Do, do you feel that um, it would you like to know if you have celiac disease or do you feel that you're able to um, manage um, just fine without that actual diagnosis? Yeah, for a long time I did want to have um, a diagnosis um, and there were for two reasons. One, so that my dad and, and some of my friends that didn't believe me, you know, would finally believe me. Look, here it says right on this piece of paper, <laughs> I can't eat gluten. You know, that would have been a nice confirmation, um, even though really in the end I knew I couldn't anyway. 
The other reason would have been like, yeah, if I can say for certain that I have an issue with gluten, then I also can um, be careful about, you know, keeping an eye out for my kids and any reactions that they have to gluten, because obviously um, celiac disease runs in the family. But um, I never did get the diagnosis, but I did see my daughter react to gluten. Well, to well, first to oats actually was the first thing that she reacted to, and it was a skin reaction um, when she was about three. Uh, and um, then she started to react to peanuts, not like in an anaphylactic way, but just would get a rash. Um, and then by then I was like, ooh, you know, and then I think it was gluten. So we took gluten out of her diet too, and she's fine. And every once in a while we test her on it if she could, you know, it's hard. She's she's almost eight. And um, when she goes to a birthday party, she's the only one with the gluten-free cupcake. And, you know, she misses out sometimes on things. And so every once in a while I'll let her test it, but it still comes back that, you know, she, she has, uh, she gets a rash when she's exposed to it. So my thinking is that, and also through some of the research that I've seen, that a lot of times gluten sensitivity, if you don't have full-blown celiac disease, you could have gluten sensitivity, and that even gluten sensitivity can be a precursor to celiac disease if it goes unchecked. So if you have gluten sensitivity, if you're somebody that reacts to gluten and you continue to eat gluten, um, you may actually turn it into, you may actually develop celiac disease. So, I mean, at this point, having, you know, been without gluten since 2001, having written a book on it and have a website on it, I really, I don't need that piece of paper, you know, that says that I have celiac disease or not. I know that gluten makes me sick and that's all that matters. And the other thing is that uh, now the wheat that we eat today is actually um, much, much different than it was 50 years ago. Um, and some people are calling it, you know, like the super glutens because the gluten in the wheat today is um, more inflammatory than it ever has been. Um, and some experts um, in celiac disease have shown that the wheat of today is actually causes um, an inflammatory reaction, inflammatory reaction in pretty much everybody. It's just that some of us are more susceptible to it. So the wheat of today is actually not good for anybody for the most part. It's really interesting that you talk about the, the wheat of today. And I know that in Australia and the US particularly, our crops are just so modified from what they used to be. They're sprayed heavily with pesticides and herbicides and toxins. Mm-hmm. And our breads are filled with preservatives and other agents to keep them on the shelf for longer. Um What I have found very interesting is that when I travel to Europe, particularly when I've been in France, where they have a very different method of um, producing food to us uh, in the the States and Australia – their bread is only designed to be consumed on the day it's made. And and they have bakers working throughout the day. So you have your morning bread, you have your lunchtime bread, and you have your dinner bread, and it's baked for that purpose. And their crops aren't nearly as modified as what we have. And I actually can tolerate their gluten products so much better than I can any bread that I could eat in Australia. And particularly bread in the US is just like a little bomb for my um, <laughs> digestive system. Yeah. 
And I found that really interesting. I was over in the in France uh, about a year and a little bit ago, and I was talking. I was studying French over there, and I was talking to my teacher, and I said, you know, it's very interesting. Um, I can eat so much more broadly here than I can back home, and she was saying to me. We are only just starting to see food intolerances arise in France. It's brand new for us, whereas you guys have had it for many decades. Um, and it's so interesting just how much of an impact the the uh, the way we treat our crops has on our digestive systems. Um, and I've got some really interesting episodes for people that uh, if they haven't gone and listened to them, episode 30 I interview, I've interviewed Dr. Lisa Shaver all about celiac disease and she talks about um, the importance these days of getting tested to know whether you do have celiac disease. Um, I think it's difficult for those of, the, those of us uh, like you and I, Heather, who have been gluten-free for many, many years and when we were first exploring it, it was just, um, uh, you know, we just didn't have the support from doctors and we don't want to go back to eating that much gluten to get tested. Yeah. But I but I think no for anyone listening now who might suspect they might have an issue, I know Dr. Lisa Shaver talks a lot about the importance of getting tested. And I also have a great episode with um, Erica Julson, who's a dietitian and nutritionist, on episode 29, talking about the differences of food sensitivities, intolerances and allergies. And, and for anyone listening to us today who's thinking – what is the difference between a gluten sensitivity and a gluten allergy? Um, that is a really great episode to go back and listen to. Hmm. Let's talk about uh, your website and your book um, and really why you've set them up and, and how they're helping people today. Uh, sure. So um, like I said, I created Stuffed Pepper when I started seeing um, more and more people going gluten-free and that people were actually you know, aware of what the term was. Um, so I had the idea back in 2001, and I thought it could be a good place to exchange recipes and that sort of thing. Um, and I also had um, in mind that there would be some uh, medical experts on celiac disease and gluten sensitivity that could weigh in from time to time or um, put in some of their own blog posts to help people you know, with medical advice and nutrition tips and, and et cetera. Um, but it turns out that... Um, well, everybody started to get busy on their own. And so I had to start doing some of my own research. My idea was just to kind of host the site and, and you know, um, um, be an editor, basically, of, of this magazine, this online magazine. But I had my own questions that I wanted answered, and I started doing more research. And it turns out that the way we are doing the gluten-free diet um, is really not helping anybody. The gluten-free diet, as we know, it has a very poor track record in healing people's guts. And there was one um, article, one paper that was written in was it 2009, I think, that says um, that something like only 8% of people on the gluten-free diet healed their gut. 8%, <laughs> which is like really small. Now, there's other studies out there that were a little bit better, but at best, I saw like the best case scenario is that one third of people on the gluten-free diet are healing their guts. That's not good. <laughs> um, and, and that's why we have so many uh, comorbidities in celiac disease and gluten sensitivity because the gut has become compromised and it hasn't been fixed. And, you know, I have on my website um, 
something like 200 uh, disorder, um, you know, disorders and diseases that are associated with celiac disease and gluten sensitivity. And so I wanted to find out, first of all, this is really depressing news. So the gluten-free diet isn't helping us. How are we going to get better? <laughs> um, but, you know, and I also thought it was surprising that more that not enough people are talking about this in the gluten-free community. Everybody's sharing recipes and sharing health advice, but nobody's talking about how our gluten-free diet is actually not helping us. So, you know, first, I, you know, after I got through the initial depression of this news, I figured, well, there's got to be some solutions. And so that's what I started looking at. And um, so a series of blog posts on my website was, was um, first what started um, this discussion and this research and this delving into, you know, the true science behind the gluten-free diet. And then I turned those blog posts into a book, um, which is, you know, highly referenced in the medical literature, but I tried to make it as, you know, digestible as possible to the layman um, as to just just exactly why the gluten-free diet isn't working and what we can do about it. And why why is that? Why is it not working? Um, and it's so interesting that there's that research because I know that myself, when I went gluten-free, I had several months of rep- reprieve, but then I started to feel quite ordinary again. And I, I, I started to feel quite sick on those gluten-free alternatives, the gluten-free breads, the gluten-free pastas, um, you know, I'd go crazy on. I'd be like, oh, it's gluten-free. I can eat as much as I want. <laughs> right. Well, so why is it not working for us? Right. So, you know, it's interesting that you went gluten-free this about the same time that I did. And so for a long time back then, there was no point in eating gluten-free breads because they were, you know, like cardboard. I mean, there was just, there was, there was no fun in it at all. So probably you, like me, ate sort of more of a whole foods, maybe even paleo-ish diet because there wasn't any alternatives in the like grain, uh, the gluten market. So then all of a sudden these gluten-free foods come out in the market and I wanted to partake just like everybody else. I'm like, oh my God, like donut, really? You know. <laughs> and even though I didn't eat that way normally, it's the same thing when I started eating these gluten, quote unquote, gluten-free foods, I started to get sick all over again. And, um, and I say quote unquote, because that's, that's one of the reasons why, uh, I think that gluten-free foods can cause us problems because, um, in the U.S., uh, the FDA allows for up to 19 parts per million of gluten in a food that's called gluten-free. And I know in Australia, you couldn't have, um, three parts per million. It had to be three parts per million or less. Um, we, I don't know if they're changing that. I've heard that people want to change that now to be 20 parts per million so they can be competitive with the rest of the, uh, market out there. But, um, essentially what it means, 20 parts per million or 19 parts per million, it, it means that there's a certain amount of gluten that is still allowed in our gluten-free foods. And I've done a lot of research on it. And in fact, the FDA itself, this is just mind boggling, did its own, um, meta-analysis of all the papers out there that looked at what is the safety threshold for gluten um, for people that are sensitive to it. And they basically determined, whoever wrote this paper within the FDA, determined that um, 0.5 or something parts per million of gluten, essentially zero (laughs) parts per million of gluten is safe for those that are most sensitive to it. And um, yet they then went ahead and said that, yeah, if you want to call your food gluten-free, just make sure it's less than 20 parts per million. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. It's crazy, isn't it? Uh, because yeah. it, if, you've got a, if you've got celiac disease or you've got a really severe sensitivity, that's plenty of gluten that you're still getting exposed to. You are. I mean, there's one study that showed that there's this woman who, a, a woman with celiac disease who was very strict about her diet. She stuck to, stuck to her diet very well, except for her one communion wafer once a week. Um, and that was not, and I think you just take a bite of it. So it wasn't like it was even that much gluten, but just that once a week was enough to keep her from, you know, ever getting better. Um, so it, it's really important, but unfortunately the foods manufacturing industry has taken over gluten free and we, most people get their advice from, you know, food labels often or, um, and, and a lot of people also say, oh, it, you know, gluten free must be better for me because they see it everywhere now. And maybe they might have gluten sensitivity, but unfortunately, going gluten-free is just not as simple as taking your gluten foods and replacing them with the gluten-free foods. And so that uh, fact, the fact that there is still possibly gluten in many of these foods is one issue. Another issue is that once gluten has caused issues with your you know, gut, your gut is compromised and now you have to heal it and all kinds of things can happen after this. And I'm, and of course, I know you know about carbohydrates um, and how, you know, the bad bacteria can get into our gut and candida can um, overgrow. Um, and, and so when you're replacing your gluten foods with these gluten free foods, you're not giving your body a break. In fact, you're just feeding these bad bacteria that love this kind of, you know, sugary, refined sugar, you know, refined flour carbohydrates. It's like fast food to them. It is. It's such a little powerhouse. It's interesting. I had a, an email just just today from a person who has just been diagnosed with SIBO and said to me, um, just checking I can eat gluten-free bread. And my <laughs> response was, any kind of bread, be it gluten or non-gluten uh, containing bread, is like pouring petrol on or, or gas on a fire. It is just a little powerhouse of um, amazing fuel for our bacteria. And gluten-free bread in particular is generally, as a rule, so highly processed. We're using potato and um, tapioca or corn and rice flours that have been incredibly processed so it's really refined it's basically like eating cups of sugar mm. and our bacteria think it's great um, yeah. and if they're in the wrong spot or we've got an overgrowth then they're just like hallelujah it's party time <laughs> and I know that for myself when I was before I knew I had SIBO and I was, I had really cut down on the products of gluten-free products that I was eating. I was, I was eating a lot more of a paleo diet than I ever had before. But occasionally I would have some gluten-free bread if I was out in a cafe and I wanted some toast uh, with my breakfast or if I really felt like some pasta and I hadn't learned about zoodles yet uh, <laughs> and I would have some gluten-free pasta. 
and I would just be so bloated um, as a result of it. And I now know it was because I was giving my bacteria just this huge feed of very accessible food to mm. them. Mm. Um, you've changed your, your diet quite considerably. Can you talk to me around how, like, what life is like for you now and also how you eat now? Right. So, um, so once those gluten, new gluten-free foods started to make me sick, um, I basically uh, developed adrenal fatigue and leaky gut. Now, I'm not blaming it all on the gluten-free foods because um, I also had a thyroid condition, which probably um, had gone on unchecked because I had two pregnancies and the thyroid changes a lot during that. Um, so there were all these factors that came together that made me very sick. I had adrenal fatigue, which means that I couldn't sleep at night and I was tired all day. And I had leaky gut. And um, and again, doctors couldn't help me. I went and asked for help from a couple of different doctors. And one of them told me like, oh, yeah, sure, we'd all be healthier if we ate less bagels. You know, I'm like, no, <laughs> I can't even have a crop, you know. <laughs> and then another guy was, um, he said, oh, you're just depressed. And I was like, you know what I did? I said to him, I was like, um, no, I, I'm not depressed. And then I burst out crying <laughs> because I wasn't it wasn't depression that was making me sad. It was, you know, it was everything else that was like, this is just ridiculous. Why do I keep having all these problems? So, you know, I basically hadn't healed my gut. I had leaky gut or intestinal permeability. I don't know if you probably you've discussed this on your show, I would imagine. Um, yes, definitely. Yeah. So, um, and, and so, so, but I only figured that out by the fact that I was reacting to every single food out there. I couldn't eat hummus anymore. I couldn't eat any seeds. I couldn't eat, you know, I definitely couldn't eat dairy, soy. Everything was causing me problems. And so, one by one, I mean, I just basically listened to my body. And one by one, I took all of these foods out. And it was getting ridiculous. <laughs> but then I finally heard about this paleo diet. And I, you know, I found out, oh my gosh, my, the diet that I'm eating by restricting all these foods actually has a name. And I thought that it was kind of a silly, you know, fad diet, you know, eat like the caveman did, come on, you know. <laughs> but when I looked into the science behind it, I was like, oh, well, actually there is merit to this and it makes a lot of sense. And anyway, my body was telling me this is how to eat anyway. So um, by going paleo and getting rid of all these foods, I felt so much better I didn't have any brain fogs anymore. I d barely got sick anymore. My immune system was definitely like starting to heal. Um, I didn't have the adrenal fatigue. So I was mostly feeling a lot better. Um, but there was still this one little nagging um, thing is that I had, I still had bloating and I still had a little bit of digestive distress. I mean, it was way better than it had ever been. And, and I wasn't in a lot of pain. I wasn't getting sick much. So I wasn't really complaining and but I still had this little nagging thing like I don't understand and then every once in a while my stomach would bloat like hugely like it looked like I was pregnant and it was kind of embarrassing so I still tried to figure out what that was and um I was certain certain that I had SIBO or SIBO I don't know what some people say SIBO some people say SIBO but um I was certain that that's what I had because my symptoms sounded so much like that and so I went to another doctor and he was actually an alternative healthcare guy. 
Um, and I asked him to get a test for SIBO, but he said that he didn't believe in those tests because the hydrogen breath tests are not supposedly that accurate. <laughs> and I was like, I don't care. I just want to know if I have this or not. So I sent away anyway to the this company that does the tests. Um, and uh, and they, they send you the results back and they just give you this caveat that you have to have, you know, a healthcare professional to interpret the results. But it was pretty easy to interpret. Um, I did not have SIBO and I was very unhappy. I was devastated because I really wanted it to be that because I wanted to find out what is still causing me problems in my gut. And so um, I went I, on a whim because I didn't have anybody else to turn to. I went back to the company. I said, could there be anything, anything else that like mimics the symptoms? And so then they sent me a free test for fructose malabsorption, um, which is also another hydrogen test. And um, I came back positive for that. And it turns out that all the apple and kale smoothies that I was eating, thinking I was so, you know, being so healthy was actually making me sick. <laughs> and that's quite often the case. It, it uh, Unfortunately, it's still um, very common that uh, doctors say that they don't either believe in SIBO or SIBO or SIBO. There's all sorts of ways to pronounce it. Okay. Um, and uh, it's just, it's so interesting how many variations I hear on it. Um, and that there, another common thing is that they don't believe in the accuracy of the testing, which I think is actually, um, you know, I think it's a bit silly. Yes, there is, there is, uh, there can be issues with accuracy on any test. So yeah. to say, carte blanche, that you will not do a test because you don't believe in, in its accuracy, I think is is unfortunate for the patient. And if you are a patient that has had that said to you, I'd go and find another doctor. Um, okay. And they know now that if they do the um, lactulose and the glucose and the fructose test, uh, they can do all three of those tests. That gives a very good indication of the likelihood of SIBO. And um, I know that when I did, I did the lactulose breath test, which demonstrated I was hydrogen dominant, but also had some methane present in my SIBO. It was very clear from the um, from what came back that I had it. Yeah. I didn't need to go and do any further testing. Um, but fructose malabsorption often can go quite um, hand in hand with gut issues. And um, I'd like to hear about how you then managed, uh, you know, discovering that you weren't great with fructose and how you incorporated that into your life and your diet, which, you know, you're already um, restricted through going gluten-free yeah, oh and paleo. God. And paleo. And then it's like, what? Now I have to take fructose out of my diet too? Oh my God, is there no end to this? It was really frustrating, especially when a lot of the things on the paleo diet that you eat that are healthy have fructose in it. So, you know, cauliflower rice, you know, like I said, apple and kale smoothies, all of these things I couldn't eat. Um, so at that point, I actually went ketogenic because, well, I was told to go on the FODMAPS diet. So I'm sure you guys have probably talked about that diet too. Yes, we have. Yeah. And um, so I was told to go on that, but I was like, oh my God, this is really confusing. Okay. I thought going grain-free, dairy-free, soy-free, sugar-free and everything else, you know, legume-free was already enough. Now I have to look at all these different, it's getting really confusing and I'm just tired of trying to figure out what to eat. So I actually went ketogenic and um, I did, I did also eat some carbs, but I had to make sure I did, I did study the FODMAPS diet and I did figure out what things I could and I couldn't eat. 
But basically, I just had a few um, safe carbs that I could eat and mostly then was doing, you know, protein and, and um, fats, lots of fats. And I found the ketogenic diet to be very therapeutic and um, and tasted good and, you know, helped me to keep a slim figure as a side benefit. So there are all th good things about the ketogenic diet. And I felt a lot better and my, my body did quiet down and I actually felt really good. Um, but I wish I could say that, that that's the happy ending. <laughs> but then... Uh, um, not too long after that, well, I guess, it, so I think I was on the ketogenic diet for a year and a half. And then, um, I started CrossFit. Um, and not too many months after that, um, I developed a gynecological condition called adeno or adenomyosis. Um, I haven't actually heard of that one. I know. Oh. It's a new one. It's a rare condition. <laughs> and I was like, how many things can one girl have wrong with her, you know? <laughs> so, um, so, and this is actually the subject of my next book, so I won't sp speak too much about it. But um, uh, one of the things was, well, basically, I don't even know where to start on this, um, I went to the one gynecologist. She was a conventional doctor. I was like, could it have anything to do with my thyroid? And she's like, absolutely not. You know, and I was like, but it's got to have something to do with hormones. And so the more I thought about it, I was like, started peeling back some layers, like realized that the, the thyroid disease that I had, stress-related, IBS, stress-related. I just have this great article from 2011, which is a literature review that shows specifically how stress affects the gut how it can cause um, food allergies, it can cause increased intestinal permeability, it can cause, um, you know, decreased motility, all these things. I'm like, wow, that sounds like me. So stress causes IBS, stress causes Graves' disease. And then why wouldn't it necessarily, you know, help cause adenomyosis, which could actually be an autoimmune, it, it's shown some autoimmune markers. And so we know that autoimmune diseases can be caused by stress. So I think, the CrossFit was kind of like a straw that broke the camel's back that my body was really stressed. I was on a ketogenic diet, so I wasn't eating enough carbs, but I was really pushing my diet, I mean, my body with the CrossFit. Um, and so I stopped that, but there was more to the story. I had to keep peeling back layers. I had just had a big cross-country move that was kind of stressful in a new community where I feel kind of isolated because I don't know people. That's kind of stressful. And then, um, but then I keep pulling back layers and I learned that the great, that Graves disease can be, um, has been attributed with papers since as far back as 1902 has been attributed to stress and really like emotional, um, distress, including like emotional abuse. And I'm learning then that adverse childhood experiences can be the cause of so much of these, um, chronic illnesses. And, well, I have had um, adverse childhood experiences. Now, I don't know if you talked about this at all on your show, and maybe it's getting a little off topic, but there, but gut, you know, it is related to gut as well as other issues. Um, and, and there is a website where you can take this test that talks, it's called ACE. What's your ACE score? Like how much of an adverse childhood, um, did you experience? And I think I'm a two on that. So it's not like this huge thing, but, I was basically um, emotionally abused, which is it seems it's like still a hard word to say because it's so strong of a word. But um, for most of my you know developmental life, 
So I have this, this automatic shutting down of my system as soon as I face any kind of potential adversity. As soon as I get scared or worried about something, my gut shuts down. And, um, and so I've, I've had to learn in the past year. And so good news is, you know, I have looked at all what my stressors are and I developed, I went into all these different stress reducing techniques and, and not just yoga and meditation, which definitely help, but some really specific ones that are good for, um, chronic, you know, um, emotional traumas. Um, and the good news is I've completely reversed the adenomyosis. So that is gone as of like, Basically, a year later, not even a whole year later, did I reverse that. And I think that I'm actually now that I realized that that was a stress related disease and I've been focusing, you know, looking at stress head on, I'm actually now calming down my gut and able to start eating some of these foods again that were causing me problems. So I, I think there is a, a good, you know, ending to this story. It's just a really long story. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good to hear that some of these foods are coming back and also that you've been able to reverse, uh, you know, that, that most recent condition. And it's something that I've seen in myself and I know that it happens with others that once we start to repair um, both our gut health but also start to address some of these other layers that are happening in our body. Mine was stress as well. I, I had significant tra childhood trauma through um, abuse from a, from a family member, sexual abuse. And, uh, and it's only been in recent years that I've really actively dealt with that. And it was incredible just the release I felt coming from my gut mm. once I started to peel back the years of trauma I experienced at the hands of this adult when I was a young mm. girl. So I think that sometimes when we go, when we have a, a diagnosis like SIBO or we realize that gluten is um, becoming problematic, sometimes that's just the tip of the iceberg and there's a lot more to come. Yeah. <laughs> but I yeah. think that it can be a really positive thing ultimately, uh, that we can end up being much healthier and much happier as a result. But like you say, it can be many years in the making yeah and I think I mean I think this was the final thing that I needed to do was to face the stress head-on and I think all of us know deep down inside that stress can cause us issues but none of us really look at it deeply as to what might be really causing us problems and you know we might try to slow down a little bit or do some exercise that you know helps to release some tension but for those of us with chronic disease, the stress factor shouldn't be taken lightly. It's, it's really something that is ingrained in our body. And what I learned is that, I mean, even though I knew now that my body would react in certain ways in stressful situations, cause I, I'm still, I was still having contact with this one parent, um, as of like even like six months ago. And I was still, I could feel my gut clenching anytime I had to like respond to an email or whatever. And I couldn't stop it. So it's not like you can just all of a sudden, you know, start meditating and then this stuff goes away. I mean, it takes a long time. It takes practice. But there are some real, real tools out there that um, therapists are using to help us to release this emotional or stored trauma that um, it's actually been working for me. And one of the ones was um, one of the techniques was neurobiofeedback. Um, where they put little wires on your brain and put some electrical, like very minor electrical impulses to your brain. And it just kind of rejiggers it a little bit. So your brain kind of has to like 
wobble and refix itself. <laughs> if that's, you know, if you can imagine that. And, um, and it actually helped me to stop. Like all of a sudden I didn't have this automatic clenching anymore. It was, it, I was more in control from my mind and my heart. I was able to, you know, step back and breathe and think about situations instead of reacting, which is what, you know, I was always doing before. So that was a really great technique. And then there's also EMDR and um, sensory motor psychotherapy, two other tools that are really great for this kind of thing. Um, so, but I think we can probably have a whole show on all of those techniques. <laughs> I think we could. And, and it's about finding what works for you. And sometimes it's one thing. It could be multiple things. Uh, I did a really great technique with my – I found an amazing psychologist here in Melbourne, Australia, and we did a, a, an amazing technique where – I would uh, close my eyes and we'd go back into one of the memories and she would tap on my knees and it was um, and both my knees, so left and right, and she'd go left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right uh, through the session. And it would that in and that was kind of helping recircuit, rejig my brain as well and taking out the huge emotional um, connection I had with it and allowing the um, sensible side of my brain to rationally think through that experience, think through that trauma, take an adult perspective um, on it rather than a child perspective mm. and not going straight into fight or flight response, which is what I would do. And exactly the same thing would happen to me. It would go straight to my gut and she'd say, where do you feel this? And I'd say, my gut. And my gut would be tied in knots and just feeling like it was churning. Um, and now I have such greater control and I don't have that overwhelming urge to flee when things get tough, Yeah, which yeah. I used to. That that Which technique is, is that technique is the, is EMDR and it started with eye rapid eye movement. They would go f take the fingers from one from the left eye to the right eye back and forth, you know, and make you follow the eye. So it's the same thing. And then there's another therapist that has it. She's got a paddle, two paddles. You hold one in the right hand, one in the left, and it goes back and forth. So that that's interesting. That that's the same technique. And there's something about that that allows you to be in the present in a safe place while still entering that past trauma and release it and it is fascinating it's like magic isn't it it really is and I'd, I'd come out feeling um, often quite washed out because it was pretty intense going into right. memories that I hadn't wanted to think about for you know many years and in fact I had actually blocked a lot of the memories um, uh, as a protection um, from you know what was actually happening to me, sure. uh, and it was it was great. I really it was like every after every session, I felt like I was stepping forward and I was kind of emerging as as the person that I should be today. And it doesn't need to be a significant trauma like being sexually abused um, as a child. Uh, you can have other traumas, and I know that some listeners might be thinking, but I was never sexually abused, or I never got emotionally abused or physically abused. My trauma is not that bad. I'm sure I don't need to do too much with it. it. If there is a stressor in your life and it is causing anxiety, it doesn't matter how significant um, in your mind or not significant in your mind it is, if that's still causing a reaction and it's still causing a reaction today, I think that these techniques can be incredibly beneficial. And it might be that you might just be really unhappy in your job or you might have a boss who's a bit mean to you. Um, it doesn't need to be that 
you know, down to the nth degree of extreme trauma to, to do something. And obviously we need to look at our life and look at what changes, um, you know, might need to be made in our lives to remove ourselves from overtly stressful situations. And if it's a workplace that's causing huge anxiety and stress, then then I you know, often say to people, perhaps it's time to think about whether that workplace is the right workplace for you. Um, right. You know, yeah. taking control of your life. You're not you're not a passenger in your life. You are the driver, and sitting back in the driver's seat and taking great control is empowering, and it and that in itself can often help reduce stress. Absolutely, and and I think that's where meditation comes in as a really good tool. That's also free, you know, and it allows you to find out what's actually happening in your brain, like. Whose thoughts are in your brain? Are they your thoughts or are they somebody else's? And are you putting yourself down all the time? Are you putting other people down or, you know, rehashing old arguments? And you start to like filter through all the, you know, stuff that's going on up there and you start to gain more clarity. And then, then you can start to see, yeah, if it's a workplace issue, um, can you, is there some things that you can resolve? Can you find acceptance in this? Or yeah, is it time to move on? And, but meditation gives you that space to just sit back and and just allow your body and your thoughts and your energy to tell you what you need to do and what you can accept and what is okay for you to stand up and, and make decisions to do something else. Mm. Now, you've got your book, Going Gluten Free. How can people get a copy of it? Where can they go? Is it on Amazon or, or your yeah. website? Yep, it's on Amazon um, and you can get it in you know other countries as well. So, I mean, there's Amazon for Australia and Canada as well. So, yeah, it's on, it's, um, there's an electronic version and there's a paperback version. And your website is wonderful. So I'd love for you to just tell people how they can go and find your website. You've got a whole bunch of resources on there that can help people uh, in the who are looking at going gluten-free or perhaps want to learn more about um, what gluten-free really means. Where can they find you? Yeah, thanks. Um, it's called Stuffed Pepper and it's stuffed-pepper.com. And if you sign up for the newsletter, you get a free meal plan that just kind of gets you started on thinking about how to go totally grain free. Um, and there's also some paid meal plans if you want, you know, to go a whole month and you're still trying to figure out, you know, breakfasts and whatever you can do. It's, it's only like $4.99 for a meal plan. So it's not that expensive, but um, it has links to all the recipes and stuff in it and a grocery list. Um, and we also have a kid's guide to going gluten-free that you can find on there. That's like kind of activities for kids and, um, kid friendly recipes. And, um, but also there's tons of free resources. Like I said, the free meal plan and there's lots of recipes that we're uploading all the time. And then just different articles about, you know, how your diet and your lifestyle affects your health. Um, so I've got some, you know, tips on yoga poses or different meditations you can try, um, all kinds of things. Wonderful. Heather, it's been uh, just a 
joy to have you on the show today and it's so clear that you are very knowledgeable on all things gluten-free and um, changing your diet and making a real difference and even though the journey has been has taken some time both of us <laughs> starting around the the you know end of the 90s and the early 2000s with our journey it's it's great to see that you've taken what you might have felt was quite a, a lot of adversity at one point and made it into such a positive thing that you're helping other people. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on to the Healthy Gut Podcast today. Well, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Heather Jacobson. If you would like to get the show notes or any of the links mentioned in today's episode, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash Heather. And you can also find links to the awesome events I have coming up in the US while I'm there this June and July. And I've got events happening all across the country and I would absolutely love to see you there in person. But I'm also doing some live podcast recordings. So if you would like to see me in action interviewing some of the amazing SIBO specialists that I will be interviewing, make sure you pop your details down so that you can grab a seat at one of those recordings. Just head to thehealthygut.co forward slash events and on that page you will see the events that are currently available tickets are selling fast so if you are interested in coming along make sure you do grab a ticket and if an event in your city isn't up on the website yet make sure you pop your details down because I will be able to email you the moment information becomes available now you know I absolutely love hearing your feedback so it would mean the world to me if you could go into iTunes or the app you use to listen to this podcast and leave a rating and also write a review. It really does help people who are looking for gut and SIBO related podcasts to know that this is the right one for them. And it also makes it really useful for me to hear your feedback, what you love about this show. If you're ever interested in me interviewing somebody, don't hesitate to drop me a line at info at thehealthygut.co. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. We're there under the healthy gut. Coming up on next week's show, I'm joined by Siobhan Sana and we're talking about how you create your own SIBO dream team. And I've talked about this a lot, how once I had my dream team in place, recovery became so much easier. And I've got a very special announcement of a very exciting event that is coming up at the end of this month. So make sure you stay tuned to next week's episode with Siobhan. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. 
Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.